We believe that alcoholism is a disease and that Alcoholics Anonymous is one solution to that disease. I'm here to bring you the voices of its members. Everyone that comes on the show, including myself, is an active member and has found recovery in the rooms of AA. As you listen, please take what works for you and leave the rest. My name's Doug. I'm an alcoholic. My sobriety date is 4-14-21. So that makes me uh, 12 days, 10 months, and one year sober today. This is not my first sobriety date. I got to my first Alcoholics Anonymous meeting when I was probably around 13, 14 years old, somewhere in that neighborhood. I don't know. It was a hell of an experience. There's a little bit of a backstory of, of how I got into Alcoholics Anonymous that young. I grew up with um, parents that were divorced. I had a stepfather. My parents divorced when I was two. And my stepfather was kind of the primary person in my in my life. He was um, he's very violent. Um, he came from a generation of um, be seen and not heard. I always felt like I was not his kid, and he made it really clear that I was not his child. My father was in my life, but he was kind of the father, kind of father that was fun and engaging. I grew up in two different states, uh, primarily in Arizona uh, during my childhood. But I bounced around a lot. I got, you know, when when things would get really bad with my stepfather and my mom, um, I would run to my dad. And then when things got bad with my dad, I would run to my mom. And so there was a lot of bouncing around as a kid. But really growing up, um, and I remember from a very, very early age, just being terrified by the violence um, that, that he kind of inflicted or kind of brought into our home a lot of yelling a lot of screaming and it uh it scared the scared the shit out of me as a little kid it was um i was always a bad kid i was made to feel you know not a part of and i you know later on i kind of resented my mom a lot for not protecting me for for choosing her husband over over me, uh, in my protection and my well-being, but I didn't really understand any of that stuff until much later, until I got into some therapy and, and things like that. But from a very, very early age, I remember feeling not taken care of alone. I don't know that I've, I felt different for sure, but more terror than anything. I, I was just scared to death of everything and everyone. Um, I was afraid of violence. I was afraid of getting hit, be sent to my room, things of that nature, where it, it really had a huge impact on me. And so I remember thinking from a very early age, um, you know, nobody's going to be in this world but you. Nobody's going to be able to take care of you. If you want anything, um, you're going to have to take care of yourself. And that translated into a whole lot of other bad choices, bad decisions, bad behaviors that that affected me throughout my life. First grade through sixth grade was kind of stable. 
I was in the same school, same neighborhood. It was, I, I guess it was a good, you know, I, I want to say it was a, my needs were always met. We weren't, you know, eating government cheese. We weren't moving from hotel room to hotel room or anything like that. It was a pretty normal middle-class family, but behind closed doors, it was, um, it was terrifying to me. I remember being put in a, you know, I, I, I had to, I had to eat in a high chair until I was uh, six years old because I made too much of a mess. And uh, I remember being humiliated and embarrassed by that inside. The friends in the neighborhood I kind of connected with. I was I was a little small kid. I had asthma. So I remember a lot of hospital visits uh, because of my, my asthma, a lot of being sick with strep throat and various things. And there was a sense of, of um, there was kind of a sense of um, like it was my fault that you're sick, you're, you're causing problems, don't be seen, don't be heard. And I was, I was termed like a, um, a hyperactive kid. In the third grade, I remember them taking me and putting me on a, a medication called Ritalin. And from what I, I don't really remember a whole lot about it, but I know from my aunts and uncles who were kind of my guardian or my, my babysitters, because my parents both worked, that they kind of turned me into a zombie. I don't remember third or fourth grade very well. I also had um, dyslexia as a kid and in the second grade, and, and I was writing my numbers and letters backwards, and they sent me to a special ed class. And I remember feeling embarrassed by that and ashamed of that. It was quickly corrected and I learned to read and, uh, and reading was a huge escape for me. And one of the greatest things that my mom gave me, uh, as a child was books. Um, we weren't allowed to during summer vacations and things, we weren't allowed to like sit around and watch cartoons a lot. But uh, I could read and escape in a book. And so I loved books. Reading and learning um, really became a, a an escape. That was kind of my first escape was through reading and, and, uh, and things like that. My parents, my stepfather and mother had a, had a second child when I was in the second grade. My half-brother, Kyle. And once he came into the picture... There was a lot of conflict in that home in that, in that, um, you know, there was a, they had a new baby. Um, they had a baby of their own and not just, you know, not just me around age 10 or so. I remember being sent to my behavior, uh, them telling me my behavior was, you know, I was acting out and, and doing it's just doing stupid kid stuff, you know, stuff that little kids do, you know. But always in trouble, always, you know, bad, always not good enough. I, I could never measure up. I could never win uh, the approval of the family. And so I got thrown into, um, I, I bounced around a lot. I, I got sent to my dad's. I'd come over here to California and it would be all fun and, and loving. I got to go to Disneyland a lot. My father worked as a truck driver. 
And so we drove charter buses and things of that nature. And so I got to see, you know, sites and, and, uh, and things like that. And it was fun. It was, um, there was, I didn't have to worry about getting sent to my room, getting hit, you know, just conflict and, and yelling and screaming and, you know, walking on eggshells, constantly walking on eggshells as a kid. So, yeah, that's kind of how, you know, that kind of developed that pattern uh, in my life that kind of laid the groundwork for a lot of other stuff. And what I mean by a lot of other stuff is I, I got, um, you know, I kind of was the bad kid. I remember um, there was a lot of alcohol in my family, too. Definitely, there was a lot of alcohol in my family, and it was unpredictable. It could be, you know, our, our book talks about not pronouncing other people alcoholics, but there was a lot of alcohol and a lot of unpredictability. You never knew what you were going to get. It could be could be violence, yelling, throwing things, or it could be that lovey, sappy, un, ungenuine love. You're a good kid. I love you. Uh, that kind of bullshit. And so just not having any kind of sense. I really hated alcohol. I didn't, I didn't, I thought it was, um, you know, I just, I, I knew it made people different. But once I got my hands on it, and I clearly remember a time when we got into my stepfather's bar, um, somebody had scored a dime bag of weed. And uh, we went over to a friend's house. My aunts and uncles all smoked pot. So I was raised in that generation of the early 70s where, you know, it was kind of hippie-ish and rock and roll music and things like that. And and they, like I said, were my caretakers. But I I, I was around a lot of alcohol and, and marijuana as a kid. I remember sitting around at a real early age, probably packing bowls for my for my aunts and uncles. And um, so I knew what it was. I, I knew I, I wasn't, I was kind of scared of it, but not really scared of it. I wanted to try it because I knew it was, it was different. And I wanted to be grown up and unique and I wanted to fit in with other people and things like that. And so, you know, we experimented and I remember getting into that booze and, and smoking that pot, and we went over to this girl's house, you know, I always had that anxiety, that nervous, irritable, weird, you know, am I holding my hands right? You know, what do people think of me? But also a lot of terror inside, too. There's a lot of fear, um, tons of fear. I remember going over to that girl's house, and we drank that beer, and we smoked that weed, and, and I remember laying on shag carpet, Oh my God, they put on Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon. And uh, holy shit, I wanted to feel like that for the rest of my life, man. It took away all that nervousness, all that weirdness, all that anxiety, all that fear. It, um, I like to describe it as, a, you know, it was that part of, it was that part that, that God left out, man. Um, I could finally feel comfortable in my skin and I didn't, and Oh my God, it set that off. And I chased that feeling for the rest of my life, but set the tone for everything. Once I got introduced to that stuff and, and I could change the way I felt, it really gave me the ability to not give a shit, um, is what it did. 
And, uh, and I liked that feeling, man. I didn't have to be scared. I didn't have to be, I could still be scared, but I could handle it a lot better. And so I don't know. I, uh, I was mischievous, um, you know, rebelling a lot. Um, they were paying a lot of attention to my brother and not to me. And, and, uh, so they were always putting me in, in, um, therapy and, and, uh, you know, what's wrong with this kid kind of thing. And I, I just didn't have a voice to express things that I'm expressing now. And I didn't have words for that stuff. I didn't have words for feelings. And, and it wasn't, um, you know, I just, I didn't have a voice, man. I didn't have a voice to speak up for myself or, or to, uh, to say how terrified I was and why I was terrified and why I did the things I did. You know, I, I didn't understand it, but drugs and alcohol kind of, it gave me the ability to, to shut, to shut that off and to tune that out and to not care. Uh, compartmentalize that somehow to put it somewhere else and to bury it, bury it deep and to be able to function, man. I mean, I, I probably, I almost thank God, man, because, you know, I, I really needed to drink at six years old or at, uh, you know, in the sixth grade, man, at around, <laughs> at around 12, I really needed a drink. I was that high strung and that uh, emotionally, um, you know, unstable. At around 13, 12 or 13, I really was was starting to get into the booze and really starting to get into the weed. And it became everything. I just didn't, I didn't know that it was going to turn into what it turned into later on. It was just, it was what we did, man. It was all around. It was what we did. It was ditching school and, and you know, just being rebellious little kids. And, and But I didn't know that it was going to have the consequences that it had. I went to live with my uncle for a little while. I was living with my dad. My dad sent me to my mom. My mom said he's incorrigible. Um, I can't have him here. In the meantime, prior to, to getting sent there, I, I had a fight with a kid uh, before school. We had got into my stepfather's liquor cabinet. A kid got in a fight with me. I pulled out a pocket knife and I cut his shirt. And uh, the cops arrested me at school. And uh, I got charged with an aggravated assault. And my my mom's solution to a lot of things was to send me over to my dad. And then when I got over to my dad's, I, I really I found out that he did drugs. He smoked. He was not unpredictable in his things, but he was the cool dad. He was single. We got to do fun things. But he was he was definitely strict and gave me some morals. There are a lot of people around me on that side of the family that, that were wholesome, that were, that had stable family units. My dad was just a single guy in his thirties at that point. And uh, so he didn't know how to deal with a 13 year old kid and uh, that wanted to be a surfer kid and, and uh, you know, would sneak out and smoke pot and things like that. And he just didn't have the, you know, the, the tools to really deal with that. But anyway, he sent me back to my mom. My mom called the cops uh, or I got in trouble for that knifing thing and it wasn't you know it wasn't like i you know cut the guy's throat but i guess i could have could have went real tragic um one of those averted things um but i was on probation and i got sent to live with my with my uncle it was a rural 
ass town. I came from Long Beach, California, Surf City, OP shorts and, and you know, surfer kid to uh, a farm with two donkeys and two cows and two chickens. And it was just rural. And I thought, what the shit, man, just isolated. I wasn't speaking to my mom at the time or my stepfather. Um, they wanted no contact with me. I was the bad kid. I was, you know, they told my uncle that, you know, um, he'll steal from you. He'll, you know, he'll lie to you. He's, you know, he's just incorrigible. And that was kind of the label that was put on me as a kid. And, and, um, or that I earned, you know, um, I definitely wasn't innocent in anything that I did. And so when I was out there, I was just, I was just alone, man. And I remember getting my hands on, I couldn't, couldn't imagine living out there. I tried to take my own life and I semi tried to take my own life. Um, I ate a bunch of diet pills and it was just more than anything. It was a cry out for help. And so they took me to the hospital and, you know, I ran to the nurse because I was freaking out. Um, I'd taken so many Dexatrims that I was, you know, my I could feel my hair growing. Um, and I ended up getting sick and they ended up pumping my stomach and I had a probation officer. And they really didn't know what to do. And in, you know, in that time, my uncle, uh, when I was living out there, their house caught on fire and burned down. And there's a whole other story behind that. But um, I kind of got blamed for it. He did it for the insurance company. Didn't come out till a lot, lot later after he was dead. And, you know, I was a full grown adult that uh, the family kind of knew what happened. But what happened was they sent me to the, my uncle uh, sent me to a boy's home. But the probation took me, instead of going to juvenile jail, they put me in a boy's home. Probably around 13 or 14. I mean, I went to this crisis center first before they placed me. And that's where this, this counselor, she asked me about my life and, and what was going on. and and um, pot I was smoking and drinking and things like that and the drugs that I was trying to do and and uh, she uh, broke out a book of Alcoholics Anonymous and I thought what is this and uh, she said you might be an alcoholic and I thought I, I don't know about all that um, I could quit anytime I want to I didn't want to but that was my first exposure while I was in that boy's home, and it was very, it's kind of traumatic in that um, there was a lot of therapy, gestalt therapy. Um, we were all quote unquote juvenile delinquents whose parents, um, we'd gone so far that parents felt like um, they couldn't handle us. And so, but there was a lot of therapy, man. And holy crap, they introduced me to my feelings and uh, what those meant. And and I got to understand what those words were. And I got to express myself. And it was structured and, and telling, telling other 12 and 13 and 14-year-olds, you hurt my feelings because you made me feel like this. And, and it, sounds, it sounds wonderful, but it was a lot of... Trauma too, and it was a lot of. Um, it was really traumatic in a way, but it gave me a voice and it gave me an inner 
it gave me a way to understand what what feelings were how i was feeling why i was feeling the way i was feeling it gave me a chance to identify emotions why my anger was the way it was things like that one of the more significant things of, of that whole experience was that i did get introduced to the program of alcoholics they would alcoholics and honest they would take us to meetings really it was a bunch of old dudes sitting around smoking cigarettes drinking coffee talking about world war ii and korea and you know they were kind of resentful of us being in there because we could smoke cigarettes and drink caffeinated coffee but i kind of identified and i just kind of played along with everything what it did do was it showed me something i was drug free i was alcohol free and my my schoolwork really excelled when I was in there in that boys' home. They ended up having to take me to outside public schools because the inside learning that they had, I, I was kind of a smart kid. Um, I always tested above everyone else, and I, I used that kind of to my advantage. I read a lot. I had this, I'm a great intellect or I thought I did. But what it did is it showed me um, that I do have a brain. And so my grades went from D's to A's, and I could sustain that without a problem. And I attributed that to being sober. Um, So I got a year sobriety, and I took the chip, um, but I didn't even know what sober was at that point. I really didn't. I didn't really understand. I didn't work steps or anything. I didn't really understand what it was. And so that experience really kind of planted the seed of Alcoholics Anonymous in my head. I knew there was another way. And it also it also gave me a lot of guilt um, because as soon as I got out of there and, and one of the other things that was that kind of shook me to the core was when I, quote unquote, graduated from this thing. The director of that place took me to the side and he said, listen. When you go back out into the real world, because you would transition from from an in in house facility to a a semi sponsored or a, a foster family, um, and then you would transition from that back into your real family. So my mom would come to therapy or to the family sessions. My stepfather didn't want anything to do with it, but me and my mom started to build an understanding in a relationship. And I was able to express to her the anger that I felt and, and the betrayal that I felt, but always keeping that on the back burner in the back. And so when I when I got out of there, that guy told me, look, don't don't use any of this. You're not going to be able to use any of this out in the real world. It doesn't work. And it really threw me for a loop, man. I was like, okay, you gave me all these tools, but they're not going to, they don't translate to the real world. So again, I just, just was, I was kind of dumbfounded by therapy and things like that. I thought, what a crock of shit, man. You know, you guys just been messing with my head, but still I could put, I could put words to emotions and 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 things like that and so i knew what feelings were and i knew what they were and but you're going to tell me that i can't express them and it, it really shocked me anyway when i got out of there um and i actually did transition back into living with my stepfather and mother 
again, I was nowhere near ready to get sober. As soon as I got my, as soon as I got out, I got around my old friends and, and, uh, I immediately smoked pot, immediately started drinking again. And, um, it wasn't long before I was in trouble and, uh, got sent to live with my dad one more time. I don't know. This was, uh, it's probably around 17, 18, around that time. And, uh, was getting into harder harder things i got in a lot of trouble um i learned how to write checks forge checks by this time i was um i was really deep into my addiction and, and uh, i wrote a bunch of checks breaking into houses and and um i also remember thinking a, a lot of um kind of giving up on myself in a way um there was there's a sense of just bouncing from party to party to party no direction in life people around me were not the people that i were hanging with were not like getting good jobs and starting families and things like that i just didn't have that exposure and so i wrote a bunch of these checks and uh and i got busted for it and um what happened with that is i ended up getting sent to prison and uh they gave me a lot of felony charges right off the gate. I remember going in, getting uh, the first time I got busted, I went into a treatment program for a second, but I knew I was addicted. Um, I did. I ran away. I left there. I tried to go back to my foster family. That So I went back to my foster family. Um, I knew I was addicted with crack and things like that. And that foster family, the first one, when I got out of that boys' home, really showed me what a family family unit looked like. I had a lot of angels in my life that at certain periods of time, I got to see what a, what a normal kind of functioning family looked like. But I went back to them, and, and while, I, while I stayed with them, transitioning back into my house, into my parents' house, they did a lot of church. So there was a lot of God and I was exposed to God. And I remember the Christian God being, um, I was okay with that. Um, I didn't have, I did not have a problem with God at that point in my life. I, it gave me a moral compass. I knew the difference between right and wrong, but I, uh, I wasn't real big on, religion religion i remember reading the bible and kind of picking it apart and and seeing what would come out of preachers mouths versus what i had read and and things of that nature and i, I knew it didn't all square up that there was a lot of um a lot of manipulation in there that um probably wasn't warranted but during that time, um, you know, I'm on probation. I got busted for these checks and I'm trying to, you know, give my life to the Lord and, and be a good boy. And, and, uh, I actually met, uh, my wife at church. Um, I knew I couldn't quit smoking crack. And I thought if I, you know, if I got, if I got dunked, if I got baptized that, you know, the Holy spirit would take that thing away from me. And, that obsession would be removed and I didn't even know what the obsession was at that point. I knew that I, I probably needed to stop drinking or using. Um, I was dabbling back in AA. Um, I was trying to say all the right things to get, to get out of the situation that I was in, but I ended up 
uh, meeting my, uh, who then became, you know, was later to become my wife, a very good girl, very, very good girl, raised in the church. She actually was a 911 operator for a local city there. I was off the, I was off the chain at this point. I was breaking into houses, stealing checks, money everywhere, disappearing on her for days on end, um, smoking crack. And, and uh, I'll be damned, man, if I didn't get arrested. And um, it was humiliating for her. It was humiliating for me. But um, there was no getting out of that one. And I ended up getting um, two seven-year sentences and a six-year sentences for burglary and forgery and they took my little ass to prison at around 20 years old and that was a whole new set of terror um that was a whole new set of consequences and my time in there was spent in a lot of different ways you you really had to adapt to your circumstances um there was race there was politics there was um there was a lot of ego. Um, there was a lot of violence. Um, and and so it, it you had to form and con- conform to um, whatever the situation uh, required at the time. Um, if that required me to be violent, then I'd be violent. If it required me to be racist, I'd be racist. If it required me to, you know, treat people unkind, then that's what it, it took. I just wanted to get by and, and not become a, became a, you know, either you're a big victim or, you know, you're, you're a predator. And, uh, and I tried to skirt that line the best I could because inside I, I couldn't stomach, um, the behavior. I couldn't stomach the, um, the ignorance. I couldn't stomach any of the, the, the morals or the semi, the, you know, the pretend morals that were in there, they just didn't square up with me inside. Um, and I would have to hold that in and be who I needed to be at that particular moment. One of the things that I I did know when I went in there and, and uh, you know, I got kind of a clear head and I got away from that, from the drugs and alcohol is I, I dived right back into Alcoholics Anonymous to the best of my ability while I was in there. And education. I knew that I was a 20-year-old kid. Uh, with no clear path in life, no no direction. What am I going to do when I get out of here? I had no trade, no skills, no. I, I knew I didn't want to be in prison for the rest of my life, and it and it could have gone either way. It really could have gone either way in a lot of different situations there. But again, I had these little little moments and little people uh, and, and people that it kind of would pull me to the side and look at me and go. You know, I got I got some people that in there that that said, listen, that you know, this is not the life for you, man. You, you know, you need to go a different direction. You cannot go down this path. Um, and I saw other people that that got sucked into that, that went right instead of going left. And um, and I kind of tried to stay to the left hand side, man. And uh, so I didn't get a bunch of ta- uh, tattoos and I didn't become a member of, you know, the the gangs and and uh and i got an education and i uh and i got a trade i became a welder and a, you know i really excelled in my education it was it was definitely different when i got out 
I freaked out uh, the longest time that I did. My wife had stayed with me through this whole thing. Uh, we actually got married in prison. So she stayed with me. I came out and uh, and I kind of freaked out going from that that environment into the real world again. The free world um, really spun me for a loop. I didn't really know how to handle it. And I went right back to drugs and alcohol. And um, and I got another charge and I went right back again. And uh, so for the next um, probably all through my 20s into my 30s, I was in and out of prison and and um, violations of one kind or another. And, and uh, every time I would go back, I'd I'd increase my education and my knowledge. And and so I got a another trade of water and wastewater treatment operator license. So I didn't just do nothing with my time. By the end of it, the the drugs and alcohol in there, or the drugs, I should say, really took over. I got into uh, methamphetamine and uh, I call that my methamphetamine days and, and uh, the going in and out. I never said I'd, I'd stick a needle in my arm until I stuck a needle in my arm and, and then, um, it was just, um, it was insanity and I could not, um, I couldn't stop and I couldn't stand the person I'd become. Um, I was just, I just couldn't stand the person I'd become. I couldn't stand the morals that I had. I couldn't stand the behavior, um, that I was exhibiting. Um, I couldn't, I just, uh, I was lost. I was so lost and I couldn't figure out how, how I'd got my life into this situation and I couldn't see a way out. So I don't know. Um, the Christian belief did not allow me to, you know, commit suicide, but I felt like that was, that was my only option. The marriage at that point was just, uh, it was horrendous. The things that I was doing, uh, emotionally, not physically, there was no violence or anything like that, but emotionally it was just it was horrible. I was a horrible, horrible person doing horrible, horrible things, hurtful things. I didn't, I just didn't know how to, how to square that up, how to make that right. But I knew that my addiction had progressed so far that, that I was either going to get sober or she was going to leave. During that time, she, um, I really love kids. And uh, she said that she was going to get pregnant. Um, and I knew better than to bring a child into the world, into that environment. I wasn't going to have it. She was having some female problems. And and um, so anyway, she ended up getting cancer and um, uterine cancer. And that took that away from us. And um, And I was really, really mad at God about that. I was mad at myself. I felt... Um, I felt like uh, my behaviors and, and the actions that I was doing were a direct result of um, God punishing me um, and taking away our chance of kids. And it really made a big, not only did it, um, you know, it was, it was hard for her. Um, it's really hard for her. I can't even imagine what that would feel like um, for her. Now, I knew what it felt like for me to have that taken away because I really thought my marriage was when I took those marriage vows, I, I thought that's a forever thing. That's not just a, that's not just a, 
you know, some whimsical uh, thing. This was a lifelong commitment uh, to this girl. And it just, uh, it separated us and drew us apart. I don't know. Um, I kind of dived deeper into my addiction. And then finally, I remember one day um, she left. And um, and I had told her, there's going to be one, one or two things that's going to either happen. Either I'm going to get sober or you're going to leave. And she left. Thank God she left. It hurt a lot. I was mad at God. I couldn't believe what I'd become. And I I ran away. I was finally off parole. I left the state of Arizona. I came out here to Arizona. And the plan at that time was to put down, a, you know, no more hard drugs. Um, I was able to get uh, escape that addiction. I was 30 years old. I was now single. And I, I thought, well, maybe, you know, maybe if I just drink and smoke pot. Maybe if I just drink and smoke pot, I've had all those horrible experiences with drugs. Maybe I can just drink and smoke pot. I'd never really had a problem with alcohol. I, I didn't like it. I always overshot the mark. I was always a puker. And um, so when I came out here, this was in 2000. The plan was to move in with my dad, kind of get my shit together. I had a couple good trades. Um, so I was I was employable. And so that's what the plan was. I didn't realize, um, you know, I I found bars, man. I'd never been in a bar. I'd been locked up all through my twenties. I didn't I didn't know what you did. I'd been married. I couldn't. So once I found a bar, I was like, oh my god, I love these things. And and uh, the drinking took off like crazy, man. I remember um, my dad. I came home one day and and. Uh, and he was doing cocaine and um, he was doing crack. And I thought, Jesus Christ, man, um, he was he was a caregiver for my grandmother. I really despised him at that point. I, I lost a lot of respect for him. Um, how could you smoke crack and take care of grandma? Um, I remember running to another family member and, and staying with my cousin. And I moved out and kind of shunned my dad. And, couldn't believe him uh that that he would do that spending money on on that while my grandmother you know he's supposed to be taking care of my grandmother just having a lot of resentment and a lot of um kind of shattered my my illusion of who he was with um with who i thought he was and it it shook me for a loop i was staying with my cousin and and uh finding bars and and uh my drinking really started to progress. It became the only thing I was doing. I was losing job after job. So I stayed with my cousin, and at some point she said, you know, the plan was for you to come here, get a job, kind of get your shit together, and and uh, move forward in life. And you're not doing any of that. All you're doing is bouncing from job to job, losing jobs, not paying rent, and going to the bars. She said, you know, I hate to do it, but you're going to have to leave. And um, and I had a van at the time. She had sold me her van, and I was... So liquor really took off for me at that point. I was drinking like crazy. 
I remember uh, living in that van and, and, you know, not being able to, to function. You can't go to work all drunk. I was working as a maintenance mechanic and a welder and, and, you know, I just couldn't pull off the 12 hour shifts and, and I uh, couldn't show up for work. I was living in this van and, and, uh, you know, just barely getting by. And, and, uh, it just was one tragic or one, you know, bullshit excuse after another, uh, losing jobs. And, and, uh, I don't know, man, I got drunk one day. I remember going into a, uh, a Vaughn's grocery store and, and sticking a 22 ounce Corona down my pants and stealing the alcohol. Cause it had come to that. And, um, I remember clearly coming out and looking at that bottle of liquor, uh, that, that, that beer and, and thinking to myself, oh my God, man, this alcohol has got you like that other stuff that I had. I didn't think that, that alcohol, I would in, never thought I'd be an alcoholic. And, um, so yeah, um, I was drinking like crazy living out of this van. And one day I drank a, bottle of tequila and and i backed into a guy and and i got a dui and the point of that is that you know if you're living in your van and they take your van you're homeless and uh holy shit i was homeless what do you do then nobody wanted anything really to do with me i had isolated myself from family or from friends from family for sure and i was on the street i'm 34 35 years old and i'm living on the street and I didn't know what to do. And uh, so I started living off the side of a freeway. I found a guy that that uh, was on the street that had a had a tent. And so for the next three years, I lived on the streets and I would I would drink every day and steal food every day. And I was I could not believe how far down the scale my life had gone liquor ceased to be a luxury or ceased to be a luxury and became a necessity at that time my 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 alcoholism had progressed so far that if i didn't have it i'd I'd get sick and uh you know i'm probably drinking a fifth or, or better a day on a daily basis and and um that became kind of my thing and I remember going to a bar. I remember looking over and seeing this bookshop that was down the street. And it had this circle and triangle on it. And uh, and I knew what that symbol was, man. And I thought, oh, shit. I got to go to AA. I knew I had to get sober. I didn't know how I was going to do that. Living outside was just so degrading and so humiliating and so... I, I couldn't figure out how do you get from living on the street to back into functioning normal society? How do you do that? How do you, you know, it wasn't like I had an address or a mailbox or a phone. I would make myself these promises, you know, I'm not going to drink today. I'm not going to drink today. And at some point my life would, um, you know, it would come back and haunt me and, and, uh, the head would run and I'd think there's no way it's impossible. You might as well drink. And, uh, and I'd give up on myself every day. I remember walking into that, that store and a guy oh, that ran that bookstore. I walk in and I told him my situation. And I said, listen, man, I, I got to get sober. 
And I never, I hadn't really been to treatment programs at that point or detoxes or anything. So he introduced me to a place, a little store or a little club. And I remember telling him distinctly, like, listen, I, I'm like a real alcoholic. I'm, I, you know, I need, you know, I, I need people that are, are not going to tell me to love me till I can love myself and, you know, work on my inner child and any of that, man. Like, I got to stop drinking, man. Like, I don't know how to stop drinking. And he said, you know what? I think I got a place for you. And he introduced me to this little club. And, um, and in that particular club, they really stressed the first step. Don't take the first drink. You can't get drunk. Get that part down first. And really, I don't know that I wanted to stop drinking at that point, man. I didn't know how to stop drinking. How do you not, how do you not pick up that first drink? Like, how do you do that? But I identified a lot with the people that were in there because they were quote unquote, low bottom drunks. They told stories about their drinking that I identified with. And somehow they found a way out, man. You know, they were leading productive lives and they had long-term sobriety, long-term sobriety, 15, 20, 30 years, you know, um, there's a bunch of old crusty dudes. Um, they weren't sugarcoating any of this stuff. They were really telling me the truth about, about, you know, their alcoholism, the way they drink and somehow they'd found a way out, man. So I don't know for the next three or four years, um, I, I was bouncing into detoxes and out of programs and living on the streets and not living in the streets and, and sober livings and, and all of that stuff. There was a guy that used to go to the, to the podium and in his pitch, he used to say, you know, you might want to ask yourself what you're doing here. Do you really want to be sober? And I would kind of cringe when that old man would say that. Cause not like all the time, like, I don't. I don't know that I can handle my emotions because what was happening is I, I'd tell myself I'm not going to drink and I'd come into the room and, um, and I'd sit down and I'd, I'd go without drinking for three, five, seven days. And my, my mind would just, be, I, you know, I couldn't believe how far down the scale I was gone. How was I going to fix all this? My life wouldn't get better by Friday. And I'd think, fuck this, you know, if this is sober, you can have it right now. I need a drink. I'll get sober tomorrow. And I'd leave and I'd go and I'd get that drink. And and uh, and then the drink kind of turned on me. It turned into, you know, you piece of shit. You told yourself you weren't going to drink and here you are drinking again. And it was just just this repetitive cycle of 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 drink, get sober, drink, get sober, um, you know, failure after failure after failure. I'd 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 leave the treatment programs and I'd find myself drinking again and and I just was stuck in this hamster wheel of I'm getting sober. I'm not getting sober. You know, I give up on AA. I'm, uh, I didn't know what to do, man. I don't know. When I really, when I really said uncle, I meant uncle. When I really wanted to quit, I, I meant it. And, um, and I would just fail, uh, fail, fail, fail. I tried working the steps. I tried you know, being a service. I tried going to panels. I, you know, I tried all that shit. I tried making the coffee and, you know, putting up the chairs and, and, uh, I just, you know, when you, I felt safe in the meeting, but what do you do when you leave the meeting? Like, what, what do you do then? 
what happens when that thought of that drink comes into your head and it's it overrides all other thoughts and i would give into that and that i you know i learned was the obsession i you know kind of figured that out but i did not know how to get past that there was a guy that was sponsoring me and he went to his sponsor and he said listen i don't know what to do with this guy he he said uh you know, I've taken him, I've tried to take him through the steps. He does, you know, panels, he's of service, he said, you know, but he, go, he goes right back to it. And his sponsor told him, listen, apart from divine intervention or some type of spiritual experience, that dude is screwed. And he relayed that to me. And I thought, well, where do you get a, where do you get that? Like, they don't sell that at the grocery store. How do you get a spiritual experience? You know, what do you do? I've been crying. I've been asking God to remove this thing and, and it ain't working, man. I find myself at the liquor store. I don't know, man. Um, I spent probably the next seven years in and out and in and out and in and out, but I didn't give up. Um, that was the one thing I didn't give up. I always just kept coming back. You know, that, that, uh, that, wonderful saying that we have keep coming back keep coming back and um and so i kept coming back i don't know um I, another another drunk another meeting coming in there drunk to the meeting crying self-pity um i sat down one day and um I said, I can't do this no more. I can't do this no more. And I'd said that a thousand times and it was not, you know, anything unique about that particular time. But for some reason, I don't know. Um, that obsession got removed, man. I was able to sit still long enough and be uncomfortable long enough for that obsession to, to be removed. And, um, uh, I found myself like one day, like thinking I probably had like 30 days or 60 days or something. And I thought, holy shit, man, that thing isn't there. I have the ability to not drink. Um, the book talks about being placed in a position of neutrality and, uh, and the drink didn't affect me and it was gone. That thing was gone. <laughs> ah. <laughs> And, oh, my God, I thought, oh, my God, I actually have a chaotic Because I would see people come into the rooms and, and um, fuck, they'd sit down and they, all of a sudden they'd be sober. You know what I mean? They could stay sober. They were taking chips. They were getting years. And it, not me. You know, not me. I thought I had extra alcoholism. I didn't know. I didn't know, man. And uh, so that happened, man. And that was 2009. And. Uh, holy shit man holy shit i had a shot at this thing and uh my life kind of took off i was able to uh to get a good job i was able to consistently show up to meetings i was able to do the steps i was able to be a service to people i was you know all of that stuff man i was kind of doing the deal man and, and uh, my life took off like a rocket and i got a good job I got my driver's license back after 12 years or, you know, I was living by the beach. I was making a bunch of money and, and, uh, 
but I don't know. I remember um, I got almost almost two years almost two years sober. I remember getting all the stuff. Like I, I thought you accumulated stuff, and then you just. And I remember thinking to myself on the way home from work one day, and I'm you know I'm driving in my nice car in my nice suit, and and uh, I'm driving down, and I and that thought came into my head. Maybe now, maybe now you can drink. Um, you know, you're self-supporting. You can, you know, nobody's going to know. Nobody's going to know. Like, you're not going to, you know, get thrown outside. Um, you're paying your bills. You have money in your bank. You know, you have all the stuff. What now? You know, now what? Because um, it was about accumulating a bunch of, property and prestige and there was nothing there was nothing underneath it there was no foundation really of what it means to be sober or what it meant to me to be sober that i found out a lot later of what it what a gift it is to have that obsession removed what a gift it is to be sober and so um right around two years man uh i i that obsession came back and I couldn't really shake it. I started doubling up on my meetings. I was as I was telling people like this thing's back. I don't, I, this thing's back. Uh, I'm probably going to drink. I don't, you know, and I would, I was trying everything I could to not drink. And until one day I just told myself, you're going to, you're going to drink. You might as well get it over with. And I did. Holy crap, man. It was right back to square one all over again, man. I poured out more booze in the first month than, than I wanted. Because what happened was when I take that drink, it wasn't the feeling I was not getting any kind of relief. Um, and I didn't want to, my clarity from God was gone immediately. I felt completely cut off from you, uh, from the program, from God, from everybody. And, uh, I was right back to square one, man. And, and, uh, two DUIs later, um, I lost my job, lost my place, just, just a wreck, just a mess, just right back to square one. I don't know. I picked up one of those AA girlfriends and, and, um, we'd been together on and off for a long time and, you know, it devastated her. Um, she didn't drink. She stayed sober. It was a, it was a really toxic relationship. It's a whole nother, whole nother topic for a therapist. But it was not a good relationship. So I'm back with her, and I'm resentful, and and uh, she's supporting me, and I'm, I don't know. I was out there for about eight months that time. For the next time, so I started doing. Uh, I started that obsession got removed again. Holy shit, I was back on track, but I was really resentful because I'd lost all my stuff. You know, I'd give it. I didn't lose anything. I know exactly where it went. I gave it away when I picked up that first drink. Yeah, I was just really resentful. I didn't realize, again, what a gift it is to be sober, just to be sober, to have that obsession removed, to be placed in that position of neutrality. So that time I got about maybe 15, 16 months, somewhere around there, caught a resentment against her, caught a resentment against my situation. And I picked up a drink that time purposefully. I knew what it was going to do. 
I knew that it was going to be bad. I just didn't know how bad. And I picked up that drink and, uh, oh my God, was it bad, man? It was just as bad as it was every other time. In fact, it got worse. I ended up back on the street. I ended up putting needles in my arms again. It got really bad. Um, I was going to treatment centers and leaving. And at that time, it was about a year and a half. I don't know. Uh, it was horrible, horrible feeling of sitting in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous and knowing that, you know, I'm probably going to drink when I leave this room. And that obsession was on me and I just couldn't. I, I needed something between me and that drink and, and God wasn't listening, man. And and I didn't know. Um, I just didn't know how to stop. I knew all the words. I, I knew, you know, you can tell people you know, sit on your hands, go for a walk, whatever, you know, go to more meetings, uh, pray, 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 work the steps. But uh, for me, and this is just for me, once that obsession's on me, that drink light goes on and it's, it's a wrap. I can't, I've not shown the ability to, to stay sober without that thing being removed. And so, yeah, I took that drink again, and that time it was bad, man. It was about a about a year and a half before I could get back, and and um, I got sober one more time. I don't know. Um, I stayed sober probably about twenty months, about twenty months or so. I remember working a lot. I remember I would have these little rituals. Um, I would read every morning 60 to 63 and 84 to 88 and, and uh i would have these these rituals that i thought you know i i never i never moved from my get on my knees first thing in the morning and i'd pray and i had thank god for my day sober and and um and i had these rituals that i thought would keep me from drinking i i, I relied on that but i was also working a lot i was slipping away from meetings I really wasn't a service very often. I wasn't working any steps with anybody. I was just kind of sober. I would go to meetings a lot. I could talk a good AA talk, but there was there was no substance to it. So I remember one morning, and I'd done all my little routines. I went over to uh, our liquor store across the street from where I lived, and uh, I'd been in there a thousand times. And I bought a soda and I bought some candy and I was standing there at the liquor store paying for it. And I remember seeing the bottles behind the counter. And whereas before I couldn't, I couldn't see the things, you know, they were, I was placed in that position of neutrality where I couldn't see them. And then all of a sudden I could see them and I thought, okay, that's weird. That's strange. And holy crap, man, once more that obsession kind of came back and I attributed it to uh, like I was, I was working at home a lot and I just attributed it to um, being isolated and, and thinking, okay, you know, you know, you're not going to drink, but, but I just, I couldn't shake that feeling. And I remember walking down to, being buggy in my house and I was working at home and, and, and going down to, uh, you know, saying, Oh man, I'm feeling uncomfortable. I got to get out of this house. I'm having that 
you know, just that restless irritable discontent. And I said, you know, I'll just, I'm going to take a walk. And uh, I remember walking down to the beach and uh, I got to, I got to a particular street and I looked over and there was a liquor store. And I remember walking into that liquor store and, uh, and I bought three little airplane models. And I remember purchasing those and saying to myself, like you, you, you're insane. You, you are insane. Throw these things away, throw them away, pick up the phone, call somebody. I got a whole phone list full of people that I can talk to. You don't have to do this, Doug. You don't have to do this. You don't have to take that drink. I walked for probably five, six, seven blocks and I was almost in tears or I was pretty much in tears and I cracked the cap on that thing, man. And I took that first drink and, uh, we know what happens only this time I couldn't stop, man. I drink to, to deadly effect. I am a, I'm a fifth a day or better drinker. I'm not a functioning alcoholic. I don't, I don't go to work. I can't show up for people. People get, people that are around me get really, really scared when they see me drinking because they know how bad it is for me. And, and so it was bad. And that lasted for two and a half years. I was going in and out of programs. I remember it being a lot of, um, it was a lot of self-pity. It was a lot of, um, you've been given three chances. You, you know, that I knew the road back was, was, um, was going to be a lot of work. I didn't know how I was going to stop drinking. I knew that that obsession was on my ass. I thought I'd blown it. I really thought I'd blown it. I was going to meetings and I drink right after them. I really was hopeless, man. I, I really was just broken, hopeless. My last year of drinking consisted of, um, I could go about three, five, seven days without drinking. And then I drink. And then it was another, it was another spree. Um, and then it was probably, you know, I don't know where it would last. It would last to anywhere from a week to five days to two weeks or whatever and then it was detoxing and when i mean detoxing i I mean i mean throwing up shaking puking diarrhea stomach cramps not sleeping for seven days and and that was that was my life for the last year i went into a program at the end of 2020 i stayed there 60 days i'm the type of alcoholic that needs to remove himself from the drink and so when I went in there, I removed myself from the drink and uh, I kind of got to be locked away. I went in there for 60 days and, and, uh, I lasted a day and a half. Um, when they opened them doors and they, you know, they uh, let me out. I had the most alone feeling that I've ever felt in the world. And I didn't know what to do. And I didn't know how to not take that drink because that obsession was still there. And so five months later, I tried to go back into the same place and I did get into the same place. And, um, on the way to the detox this time, I had the guy pull over and I needed the drink to go into the detox. And, uh, so I bought three bottles. So ironically, I took my last drink on April 9th, 
2021 at 8.58. And uh, I went into that detox. I don't know. I did a 60-day program. I came out. I did uh, an outpatient program. And that obsession was removed one more time. I was terrified that that thing was going to come back. And I'm still terrified that it may come back again. Um, I know what a gift this thing is. I know that no matter how many times um, I failed before, um, I kept coming back. Right now, my life looks relatively stable. I am working. I have worked the steps. I do a lot of service, a lot of service. I have commitments. I go to meetings on a regular basis. I know what a gift it is now. Um, I don't take this thing for granted by any stretch of the imagination. It's a miracle that I'm even alive. It's a miracle that I'm I'm talking with you right now. The program of Alcoholics Anonymous works just fine. And it works really, really good for a guy like me. But it requires a higher power for a guy like me. It requires a miracle. And I've been given that gift one more time. And I don't. I don't take it for granted. Every day that I wake up, you know, I thank God for my life today. I don't know. I'm as active as I can be. I'm willing to do whatever it takes. More than anything, I know what a precious, precious gift this thing is. Um, I am under no delusions as to what I've been given the gift that I've been given. And I I treat it as such. Um, I don't know what else to say, Terrell. (laughs) Thank you for your story. It is a story of relentless tenacity and hope. I think it's such a great, I don't think, I know it is such a great case study of like a use case. Do not give up. Do not give up. Keep coming back. Um, you were a double alcoholic or an extra alcoholic and you had the obsession removed now three times. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. That's a miracle. Tell me. <laughs> I had it removed once and I just cannot imagine playing with that fire again don't and then again and then again and you're uh, and when you were you were building up your emotion and your when you were talking about the you know the obsession coming back and just the the cycle of drinking and sober and like so many times in your story I was just right there with you and I remembered what it was like and you were a newcomer and a struggling person in sobriety so much that it's like, wow, you've really, 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 I don't like the expression, but you've really earned your seat. (laughs) What I'd like to hear more about is in the last, well, before, before I ask the question, um, tell me why your last drink was on April 9th and your sobriety date is April 14th. I, I count my sobriety date as Nothing in my system because I was I was on a lot of benzos okay, got uh, to get off of the the alcohol. Nothing that affects me from the from the neck up is I'm kind of a purist in a way like that. I, I'd like to 
you know, my ego tells me I'd like to like to be a purist. I haven't had a drink since April 9th, but my sobriety date, I call the 14th because that means nothing, nothing. Got it. Okay. So my question is about your faith. So you have fellowship and you have service. You have been now coming up on two years sober. How has your relationship with your higher power, your understanding of a higher power grown over the last two years? It has grown leaps and bounds in that I know, it, I, I always knew, Tara, that it was, I used to tell myself a lot, like, like this is a battle between me and God. People had asked me and I'd said, this is a battle between me and God. God's going to remove this when he removes it and not until. And I may be one of the guys that dies. I don't know, but I know that it's, it's completely up to him now. You know, when, when it's gone, it's gone. Uh, Cause there's nothing that's gonna, there's no, I, I need a power greater than myself. And so I always felt like, you know, there's, there's a tipping point and I'll get emotional about saying this. I always felt like there was a, there was kind of like, um, like God was trying to, you know, let me know, like, do you realize now, have you had enough? Do you realize the gift that I'm giving you uh, by removing this obsession? And, um, and oh my God, how precious, how precious that gift is. Um, I didn't realize how, how precious it was. And so my faith now is probably stronger than ever. I rely on God for pretty much not well i have to rely on him for everything but uh there's no buts i just i I rely on him and i trust that you know i i have a very clear understanding of the gift that i've been given very clear that i will never my job now is is um to never pick up that first drink you know under any and all conditions For more information, read the first 164 pages of the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous or visit keepcomingback.net.